This afternoon we are looking at Lord's Day 22 of the Catechism. Lord's Day 22 focuses on the last two articles of the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Day 22, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul, after this life, immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this, my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ are the most privileged people on the face of the earth. That's really true. And I believe that with all of my heart. Christian faith is so rich. It's the greatest treasure in the world. Since Lord's Day 9, you here in Redeemer have been studying the articles of the Apostles' Creed, a summary of the Gospel. And each article of the Apostles' Creed, it shows a unique and beautiful aspect of the good news of Jesus Christ. This afternoon, we come to the climax. Come to the climax. Here we have the last two articles, the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And without these two articles, the rest of the good news of Christ, it it would only fall flat. You might wonder if that's not overstating things a bit. But Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But as Christians, we do not have hope for only this life Far from it. No, we have this confidence of the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. We have sure hope. And that makes us immeasurably richer than anyone on earth who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Immeasurably richer than someone who does not know Christ. 
That's what we have. We live in a world full of decay. It's full of death. But the good news is we have Jesus as our Savior. And he is a risen Lord. It's the greatest privilege of all. It's because the saving work of Jesus Christ is stronger than death. And that is our, our sermon theme this afternoon. We have two points. We'll look at the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, death is certainly an enemy. Death invaded this world through the fall of Adam and Eve. And everyone, everyone eventually succumbs to this enemy. Even the, the most, uh, the fastest people on earth, the strongest people on earth, everyone eventually succumbs to this enemy. Now, the only one to overcome this enemy is Jesus Christ. We confess that Christ conquered the grave. He did that when he rose. Yet Christ's victory in his resurrection does not mean that the enemy itself has yet been completely removed. We know, we know that's a reality in this world. Death, the enemy, has not yet been completely removed. So Christ truly overcame death, but death remains for the time being. So unless Christ returns before it happens, death is an enemy we will all face one day. It will, as it were, overcome us. And sometimes it happens that death creeps up over a long period of time. Sometimes it, it comes in an instant. Sometimes to an elderly person, sometimes someone very young. Death is an enemy in, in each of those instances. And when we're faced with it, we might wonder, why would God allow his own child to be attacked by such a brutal enemy as that? Death is ugly. Where is his protection and love? But there's still good news for the believer. The good news is this. Even though death remains a reality for the children of God, God does not abandon us even in death. And also this, Christ has transformed death for those who believe in him. Yes, death is a reality in this world, but Christ has transformed it for the believer. How has he done that? Well, Christ did not remove death from this world, but he has removed the sting of death for believers. And the sting of death is sin. Christ removed that from us. See, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and by raising Christ from the dead... God was showing us he accepted the son's sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus paid the full penalty for our sins, and so God raised him in glory. So in Jesus' resurrection, we can know our sins have been paid for. The, the sting of death is gone. Spirit says through Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised... 
then you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. We know that Christ has been raised, and so we can know this. Through Christ's resurrection, we are no longer in our sins. That's why death has been transformed for the believer. It works like this. The sting of death is sin. Our sins have been removed by Christ, and so the sting of death is gone. That's why we confess what we do in Lord's Day 22. Yes, we might, we might die, but our souls shall immediately be taken up to Christ our head after this life, the one who paid for our sins. And we can also say, yes, my fellow believer, my loved one in the Lord is facing an enemy. It's been attacked by an enemy, death. But this does not mean God has abandoned his or her ch- his child. No. In fact, we can approach death even with confidence in Jesus Christ. Remember, we... Unless Christ returns before it happens, we will face death. We can know I'm about to be attacked by this brutal enemy. But God is still with me. After this life, we shall immediately be taken up to Christ our head, which is better by far. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1. In this life, we're confronted with the ugliness of death. Just look around you. It's everywhere. And, and we face that, too, when we, when we face the death of a loved one in the Lord. But in those moments, we're also confronted with that glorious truth, with the, the power of our Savior, that Jesus' saving work is stronger than, than even something like death. And in those moments, we are allowed to grieve. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. No, we have great comfort for today and also for the future. One day when Christ comes back, the enemy death, it will also be removed. That's what we read from 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is reigning. He rose from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He's reigning in heaven. He's busy putting all his enemies under his feet. And one day that will include death also. And then comes the end. That's why we confess in Lord's Day 22 as well. At that point, my flesh will be raised by the power of Christ, reunited with my soul, and made Like Christ's glorious body. Death will not have the final word for believers. Will not. See, Christ at one point, when he lay lay in that tomb, he looked like he was completely defeated. No life in him whatsoever. It looked like he was vanquished by death. But he arose. And believers too, 
believers will appear to be completely defeated by this enemy. But we will follow Christ in the resurrection. That's our ultimate hope. Sometimes we might think that our ultimate hope is to, to die and go to heaven. And going to heaven is certainly better by far than remaining in this life. But it's not our ultimate hope. Scripture always places our ultimate hope in the resurrection of the dead. Think of our reading from 1 Corinthians 15. There, some within the church were saying there would be no future resurrection of believers. Maybe they just thought our souls would be in heaven forever and that would be it. Paul strongly attacked this thinking. He says, that's not true because Christ has been raised from the dead. Now listen to the logic he uses at, at, in 1 Corinthians 15. There he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So he affirms the resurrection of believers in the future by pointing to Christ's resurrection in the past. Now we might wonder about his reasoning. How does this work? How does this prove your point? These people know and believe that Christ from the dead rose from the dead. They're not denying that at all. They're only saying there will not be a future resurrection of believers. But the Spirit through Paul is saying in our reading, no, you cannot do that. You can't separate those two things. Christ's resurrection guarantees the future resurrection of believers. There will be a future resurrection of believers. Why can we be certain? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. So that's the logic of verses 12 to 19. And next he goes on to show why this logic works. First, there's verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The firstfruits. Now, the, ter- the term firstfruits is an agricultural term used in farming, perhaps. It refers to the first part of the crop that becomes ripe and ready to eat. And people rejoice at the firstfruits of the harvest. They know that The full harvest is just around the corner. Paul says it's like that with Christ's resurrection. His resurrection is the first fruits, and the full harvest of resurrected believers is coming soon. It will happen. Now, some might object still at that. Okay, Christ is meant to be the first fruits of a greater harvest. But we also know that things sometimes go wrong in farming. The first fruits might be harvested, but what if a giant hailstorm comes along and flattens the rest of the crop before it ripens? We might ask, will something likewise ruin the future harvest of resurrected believers? Well, Paul adds more to his argument to strengthen his position. Verse 21 and 22, he says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
So he first talks about Adam and all humanity. There's a connection between Adam, the first man, and the rest of humanity. People in this world are born in Adam. They are united to him. He is their head. And we know that the original sin of Adam guaranteed the sin and death of all those who remain united to him. That is, all his descendants. So every human is born a sinner destined to die, and we don't expect anything else. Every day in Canada, there's about a thousand babies born. So today, roughly a thousand babies born. Tomorrow, the same thing. The next day, the same thing in Canada. And we know that all of those children will be born with a sinful nature. They will be subject to death. We don't doubt it for a moment. Why can we be so sure? Paul says it's because Adam fell into sin. He guaranteed it for them. And the thing is, the logic works the other way too. Why can we be sure as a believer that you will rise from the dead? Well, it's because Christ, our head, rose from the dead first. The same logic works both ways. There's a connection between Christ and believers, just as there's a connection between Adam and all humanity. We are in Christ. We are united to him by faith. As you look to Christ in faith, you can know that one day you will, you will rise from the dead. Christ has Christ's resurrection has rendered it 100% certain. Do not doubt it for a moment. The saving work of Jesus Christ is stronger than death. Brings us to our last point. The Lord's Day 22 not only talks about the resurrection of the dead, but also the life everlasting. And there there is, of course, a, a connection between these two things. So the resurrection of the dead will begin the fullness of the future age of life eternal. And in some ways, eternal life can be equated with the resurrected, glorified body we will receive. See, when we use a term like eternal life, quite often I think we we focus on the aspect of time. We think perhaps primarily simply of the age that will go on forever and ever. We, we, we think about time. We get to live in that age. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. It's certainly true. But when Scripture speaks about eternal life, it places a lot of emphasis on having a body that continues to exist, full of life, without decay or death. It focuses on a a body. Scripture speaks about eternal life as having a united body and soul that has become immortal through Christ. 
Think of John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is contrasted with death, with perishing. It's the same in 1 Corinthians 15. There he says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And that is eternal life. And I emphasize this because, well, Scripture emphasizes it. But also it's one aspect of everlasting life we can really, really look forward to. Christ will destroy death forever. He's gained for us a body that will never die. He will never get sick. He will never suffer or experience pain. You might experience lots of pain and suffering right now, but you will never experience it again when you are raised from the dead. You might experience a lot of anxiety, maybe depression right now. You will never experience them again when you were raised from the dead. All suffering, all sorrow, all pain, and all tears will flee away. And Christ will crown you with eternal joy. Eternal joy. Those are some of the things Scripture plainly teaches teaches us that are coming. That, of course, might not satisfy all of our questions. We might have many questions. People of Corinth did. They They asked, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? What's it going to look like? And and we might have many questions, too. I know when I teach this Lord's Day in catechism class, there's always lots of questions about eternal life. It's good to be interested about it. It's what we're looking forward to. But Scripture doesn't give many details, either. We might wonder, what about about a really young child who who dies at an early age? When they're raised from the dead, will they be be raised as a grown-up? And I would, I would say that's it's most likely. But I can't tell you exactly. Or we might wonder, will we, will we all be like 20 years old in eternal life? And again, that, that's a possibility. I can't tell you exactly. Scripture does not give all the details. And that may be one reason why the Catechism talks about eternal life the way it does. Question answer 58. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? 
Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. We may not know all the details, but we can be sure that this is coming. When the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come, come to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Get ready for that reality. Set your hope on that reality. Set your heart on it. It is coming. May that be our treasure. And as you do, it's going to change your perspective on life today, too. This life is so short. Understand that. Believe it. This life is so short. What are you living for? And the glory and the beauty of this life, it cannot compare to the glory and the beauty that's coming in eternal life. What are you living for? As people who know this reality is coming, we live not just for today, but for eternal life with God. Paul describes the attitude of unbelievers in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, their attitude is like this, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But that's not our attitude, that's not our perspective on life. We take a different perspective. We have eternal life coming. So we can serve the Lord today and live for Him. It's true, laboring for the Lord can be hard. Living as a disciple of Christ can be hard. Building the church can be hard. Raising children in the Christian faith can be hard too. Teaching in a Christian school can be, can be difficult. Being an office bearer is not easy. Being a witness of Jesus Christ in an unbelieving world, that's hard too. But it's worth it. 1 Corinthians 15 ends with these encouraging words. Since God gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. One of the amazing things about our labor in the Lord today is that it will affect what eternal life will look like. Isn't that interesting to think about? Your labor for the Lord, in the Lord, in this life, has an impact on how eternal life will look like. And this is why. By the grace of God, we're working to build God's kingdom here on earth. And that kingdom that is being established today will not pass away when eternal life comes. Christ will just hand the kingdom over to the Father. It will remain. So the kingdom established in here and now by the power of Christ through our labor 
prompted by the Spirit, will continue on into eternity. And that is an encouragement to work for the building up of the kingdom of God now. Beloved, what better thing is there to labor for than for the the kingdom of God which lasts forever? Let me encourage you in that work. It might be hard, but it is worth it. We are working for our eternal joy. Yes, the work might be hard, but that's okay. Christ's resurrection assures us that eternal life is coming. So your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Let us now respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together hymn 68, stanza 6, 7, and 8.